This is part two of our episode on Holes Live Through This. We're continuing our conversation with Australian writer Anwen Crawford, whose essays have appeared in publications including Freeze, Overland, and Loops, writing music. She's a music critic for the monthly magazine and the author of Holes Live Through This, which was published as a part of our 33 and a Third series. In part two of this episode, we continue our discussion of how Courtney Love both challenged and parodied ideals of womanhood, the gendered connotations of fandom, Hull's influence on the music of today, and much, much more. Take a listen. I feel like even though the raincoats inspired Riot Girl, there's something more in the spirit of what Courtney Love was practicing of like, no one teaches you how to live. Like you can just sort of be yourself. But yeah, if you're ugly, you're ugly. Be angry. And you can sort of embrace these qualities that are often dismissed as unattractive or even repulsive in women. You know, like there's the Charles Bukowski's of the world. There's the William S. Burroughs. And it's like, okay to be sort of like a creepy old man. But (laughs) yeah. Like, I do think that there was something a little, she really touched a nerve with people because she, as you said, like, yeah, I think she was very comfortable embodying these things that really downgrade moral worth in women, usually. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That's right. But then she would really oscillate back and forth, too, between, like, really wanting to be the kind of beautiful star as well. And again, that was something, her kind of inconsistency was held against her. But like I said before, I actually think that inconsistency was part of her power. I think people tend to view inconsistency, particularly in public figures, as a flaw. We often want popular artists or public figures to have a kind of recognizable, consistent line on things, a particular image, something that we can rely on. But Courtney was nothing if not unreliable. But I think there was an honesty Hmm. in that. There was a truth in that that was also really powerful. How was that explored in the album, that sort of oscillation between sort of rejecting normative ideals of womanhood and yet embodying them at the same time Mm. like how did that sort of get explored and live through this for you I mean I think it's there like right from the cover art onwards the cover of the album is a shot of a very Courtney looking figure although it's not Courtney this kind of beauty queen it's a bit of a play on Carrie on the film as you said before it's almost a parody I think it is a kind of parody of what we would see as a kind of particular kind of glamorous feminine beauty But it's also kind of pushed that parody to the point of kind of disgust and objection. And I think that's a lot of what Courtney was doing too on the album with her lyrics in songs like Miss World that you mentioned and Jennifer's Body, Doll Parts, all these songs that had often something to do with dismembering and vomit. And again, like, I want to put this in context and say that I think Courtney's take on this was particularly potent, but it was also a wider part of what was going on at the time, not just with Riot Gold, but again, if you look at some of the grunge bands, if you look at Nirvana for sure, like there was a lot of the same kind of feeling of objection and kind of abjection, I mean, not objection, like bodily fluids and body parts and this being ill and being sick and that was a really strong element of a lot of what was happening in the early 90s in 
kind of American alternative rock. So, you know, I think Courtney was tapping into a larger thing, but her particular take on it as a woman was very potent. On the flip side of that, I mean, she obviously explores the idea of being a celebrity herself on the album of what that means as sort of in juxtaposition with all these grungy dudes from Pearl Jam (laughs) or whatever. But I think something that she also explores or something that you talk about in your book a lot is this notion of the fan. And in your book, you argue that a fandom is sort of a feminized role to play. What do you mean by that exactly? And what are the different roles to you that stars and fans take on? Well, I think there's a fairly clear pattern in the history of popular music of fandom being very strongly gendered as something that's not only female, but girlish. And so when I wrote that a fan is a feminized role, That's part of what I was getting at, but it's feminized, like it's gendered female. Being a fan is gendered female, I think, in large part because being a fan is to kind of put yourself firstly in a kind of emotional state. I mean, again, one of the kind of cliches of fandom is that it's kind of bound up in a hysteria and we think of hysteria as a female trait. So being a fan is about being kind of, emotionally febrile and volatile and it's also about putting yourself willingly and I think that that is the kind of kernel of why fandom is quite a difficult and complex thing. It's about putting yourself willingly in a position of subservience to the star and again that notion of subservience is gendered very strongly as female. So. Being a fan, I think, is partly about paying kind of homage to something and someone that you consider to be greater than yourself and more powerful than yourself. And that position of subservience, I think we understand to be female. But Courtney would kind of flip that around. I think I have a quote right at the start of the book from an interview with her where she says, we invented rock and roll so that we could sexualize men, so that we could go and scream over all these unattainable football captains. So she kind of flips around this feminized notion of the fan by, in fact, putting the fan at the center of popular music culture, which is something that other feminist writers on popular music culture have done as well. It's like, okay, the fan may be in this subservient position in relation to the star, but you can kind of flip that around and maybe, in fact, Without fans, we wouldn't have stars. So who is really in control? You know, and that's the difficulty. Yeah. Is like with the Beatles. With the Beatles, right? Like the Beatles wouldn't be the Beatles without their fans. Frank Sinatra wouldn't have been Frank Sinatra without the kind of mania that surrounded him in the 40s when he was a young man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah. So it's a seesaw, (laughs) really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they create the whole culture and the whole mythology around these people. Like, it's sort of like a parallel to like populism. Like, yeah, like workers are the ones that create the value, like the ones that are in sort of the subservient position, not to yes. yeah. super Marxist about it. But. No, 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 but that's right. That's right. Because fandom is also a kind of work, right? Like fandom involves a great kind of investment of your time and your energy. Yeah, and so despite the fact that you are structurally 
powerless compared to the star who has the benefits of the kind of media system and their public platform and et cetera, et cetera. You are also the one creating their worth. So that's right. I think the analogy holds and it's part of also why fandom can be seen and has often been seen as a kind of potentially dangerous state, right? Because what happens if fans collectively realise their own power? And in fact, I think that's part of what Courtney was tapping into because what made her unusual was that she wanted and she very much courted a fan base of girls, right, of girls and young women. And again, this has traditionally been the audience in popular music that is the least credible, a band or an artist that has a large audience of teenage girls. There are ways in which we frame those artists, whatever genre they're operating in, as kind of trivial or a fad or whatever. But she really went after that audience. And part of the reason that she went after that audience of young women is that she wanted to, in a sense, train them in, she would say over and over again, you know, I want girls to kind of pick up guitars and all this kind of stuff. And she would often bring young women up on stage with her at shows and kind of show them how to play a chord or whatever. So she was after this kind of collective power, I think, that she kind of wanted to unleash in young women. That was part of her ambition. Do you feel like, not to keep comparing them, but just because they were, I think, in such conversation with one another, I mean, the different messages of feminism that Riot Girl and mm. Cole were putting forward, I mean, looking back on this album now, 20 years later, 25 years later, like, does it have the same potency for you? I mean, do you feel like people look back on this album through maybe a more critical feminist lens and relate to it in the way that Courtney wanted them to relate to it? Or do you think that like this album for people still has the same kind of relevance? Or do you just think it's sort of fallen by the wayside? No, I don't think it's fallen by the wayside. In fact, I've kind of been aware in recent years of a much more kind of like a re-evaluation of Courtney Love as a figure. So if anything, I think it's the opposite. I think people have come to kind of appreciate this moment more in terms of what whole, what offering. And you mentioned Riot Girl again there and going back to this kind of notion of what Courtney wanted from her fans or how she kind of put herself in relation to them. I mean, obviously with Riot Girl, you have another kind of activation of teenage girls as a collective. But I think the big difference, and it was a huge and in some ways I think impossible philosophical difference is the fact that with Riot Girl, it was about doing it outside of the mainstream system, you know. So in fact, Mm -hmm. you demolish the notion of the star and the fan as different people to begin with. And it's very much that kind of hardcore philosophy of... of, Like a DIY. Yeah, DIY thing. And certainly the Riot Girl movement in the States was pretty adamant about refusing interviews and coverage to the mainstream press. So that is a kind of form of music making and creativity that is happening outside of the mainstream media and record industry. I think the argument that I make in the book is that on the other hand, as someone from like outer suburban Sydney, who was a really long way away in every sense from those epicenters of Riot Girl. I was never really going to find out about that stuff in a pre-internet era without 
a group like Hall and without someone like Courtney Love, who obviously she wasn't a part of Riot Girl, but nevertheless, groups like Hall and Nirvana kind of acted as this conduit between the mainstream and the underground. And I do think that that was a really big part of their importance. And I've always been interested, I think, because those groups were so important to me, I've always been interested in artists who kind of occupy that position of being the kind of hinge or the conduit between the mainstream and between the underground. Because I think it can be a really important but also a very thankless position to end up in, to kind of quote the old magazine song, you end up shot by both sides. Um, Yeah, yeah. she'll be seen as a sellout by one side and then just not taken seriously by the other. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Or just being a raging feminist. Yeah. By the other side, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I remember very well that the first time I heard about Riot Girl was reading a piece on Courtney Love, probably circa 1992 or 1993. And I was like, well, what's this thing then? But of course, in a pre-internet world, it was a much more laborious task to try and find out (laughs) what was going on. Yeah, I mean, I think I brought them up again just because even though you're right, obviously Hole and Courtney Love occupied this much more mainstream space and I think that's precisely where she wanted to be. Whereas the bands like Bikini Kill or... I don't know, Slater Kenny wanted to be more in the background DIY punk. But something that sort of reminded me of both of their methods is like I used to reading about Bikini Kill, like hear these stories of them at concerts, stopping the show at these like black box theaters and forcing all of the men in the audience who were moshing up front to go all the way to the back and mm-hmm. let all of the women go up front and start moshing. I was just reminded of that when you were talking about treating the fan as an agent. Mm-hmm. I guess something that they both, an approach that had more overlap. Yeah, that's true. That's true, actually. <laughs> I'm just thinking of, I never saw Hole either at this time or at any other. They did actually do an Australian tour in early 1995. I was too young to see them. They played in an adult club, so there was no way I was going to get in. And then when they came back with Celebrity Skin, they played The Big Day Out. I think they played that on their earlier tour too, but The Big Day Out was like our big summer festival in Sydney, alternative music festival, that famously had Nirvana headline the first time it happened in 1991. It was the one and only Australian tour that Nirvana ever did and it had been booked before anyone knew who they were. So so then there were these kind of famous scenes that occurred of thousands of people trying to kind of push into these Nirvana shows on their one Australian tour. Anyway, oh. this was all leading up to me saying something about the one and only time I have seen Courtney Love play, which was maybe five or six years ago. She kind of did a solo tour here and I went to see her play and she just had a kind of band of largely male, I think entirely male, in fact, session musicians, which was kind of disappointing. And also they just weren't very good. I mean, this is a thing, right? We've talked mostly about Courtney, but the thing that made Whole Whole was that they were a band and they were a great band. Like Paddy Schemmel was an amazing drummer. Erica Lanson was a great guitarist and wrote lots of those songs with Courtney. They were kind of co-writers together and then there was Kristen Pfaff who was the bass player at the time that lived through this was recorded and who really tragically kind of died of a heroin overdose shortly after the album was released so it was always going to be disappointing to see Courtney Love 
play without those amazing musicians around her. But to get back to the fan thing, like <laughs> she was asking people to throw their bras up on stage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well quite a few actually she was like hanging them off her microphone stand so she had this collection of lingerie and part of me was like this is a really cool idea and the other part of me was like you know, bras are really expensive you know? <laughs> <laughs> they really are it's like 80 bucks a pop yeah. I, mean, I was gonna ask were you close enough to chuck yours on stage? no I didn't chuck mine on stage and even if I had been close enough I'm not sure that I would have but I mean it's kind of a great gesture but it made me wonder what she does with all of these bras like later on does she just have this massive lingerie collection <laughs> maybe she's made a mural of them or something yeah yeah something like yoko ono would do i know i know right i would like to think that like she has this room in her house it's just like an installation of bras like there's something really cool about that but yeah that was a fan gesture in which i was a bit reluctant to partake oh <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, we only have time for like one more question. I mean, you've seen them quite recently, but do you feel that live through this or whole specifically has a relationship or has influenced any music that is interesting to you that's being produced today? Mm, that's a hard question for me to answer just because I'd listen to very little rock music. <laughs> um, yeah, what are you listening to? Uh, I mean, it's been a long time. I think because I wrote this book, people presume that I'm like a real rock fan. And I think I even say in the book that, in fact, this was one of the few like out and out rock records from this era that I was into even at the time. Because as a teenager, I was much more into the kind of British stuff like pulp and suede who had the more kind of pop element. So despite the fact that I wrote a whole book about this album, my own relationship as a listener to like rock has always been a bit, hmm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that probably puts you in a position of being the person to write this book. Maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. So I feel like I do come across a group here and there, like a rock group who I think clearly have some kind of influence from whole, or maybe the way to phrase this better would be to say that maybe like their careers have been able to occur in a way that couldn't have happened without Courtney and without whole having broken some of those barriers down back in the nineties. I mean, I'm thinking in my head of like a group like the gossip who were really great. I don't want to take anything away from them. I think if, figure like Beth Ditto probably had a bit of an easier time of it. Not that she had an easy time, but I think her kind of role as a figure, as a female figure in rock was made more acceptable. And the reaction to her at the time when the gossip kind of broke was more positive because Hole had existed already. <laughs> so yeah, so sometimes I see those kind of figures or groups where I think and, you know, funnily enough, I have often over the years thought about Courtney Love in relation to someone like Rihanna, perhaps not so much anymore, but certainly there was a point five or six years ago when Rihanna was partly off the back of her abuse at the hands of Chris Brown, but then her getting back together with him, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I think people didn't know 
how to take Rihanna at that time because, again, I think there was something in both her public image and in her music that kind of challenged the notion that things might improve or that you would kind of overcome your trauma because I think that that was another thing that made Courtney so powerful both before and after the suicide of Kurt Cobain was that she kind of refused this fairly prevalent narrative that trauma is kind of something that you overcome in order to become a better and a stronger person. I think Courtney and also Rihanna in her own way, those two figures have always refused that notion that you just kind of metabolize those things and move on. Yeah. That we always have to be optimizing or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that that is really important actually, because I think the idea that we just kind of come through, despite the album's title, Live Through This, and certainly Courtney lived. And I think that that's part of her importance. I say this in the book and I've come to appreciate that more as I've gotten older that her importance was that she did live and she does live still. But that doesn't mean that your living is without trouble. You can live in ways that are difficult and fraught and you can kind of exist in your damage and make art out of it and not have to move on from it in a way. I think that's powerful. Yeah, I mean, completely. I think there's something between Rihanna or Courtney, the idea that somebody's life is fraught, it's complicated, it's ugly. I mean, that's just the truth for everybody. It's just so much more the universal truth for people than I think what they're both getting at and trying to identify and challenge this whole trap of always trying to optimize yourself, always trying to improve, as you're saying. like It's just like another patriarchal trap in a way to always have to overcome your own trauma or overcome your own imperfections. And I want to keep listening to these women, these ladies who tell me it's okay to be a little messed up. Yeah, yeah. I always loved the fact that Rihanna called that album of hers unapologetic, right? That it's just like, okay, I'm going to exist in all of this messiness. I think to do that does give people permission is a way of saying to people, you can be all these things and you don't have to resolve them into some kind of coherent and easily legible brand or whole or whatever. Oh no, I just used the word whole again, but I meant it with a W that time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great note to end on, actually, this idea that none of us have to apologize. No more saying sorry for anything. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there are probably circumstances in which apologies are called for, but yeah. Yeah. No, what I mean to say is just that from the day I was born, probably to the day I die, I will spend so much of my time apologizing for things that I don't need to apologize for. Mm -hmm. And it's just so nice to have people like Courtney Love or Rihanna or even Lana Del Rey who who has her own issues. But just like these icons that resist that idea of having to say sorry all the time. All the time. Yeah, yeah. And that in fact, maybe people do dislike you for various reasons or people react to you badly, but who the fuck cares? You know, (laughs) don't waste your time or your energy trying to make yourself amenable to people that just want to tear you down, I guess. I mean, that was always Courtney's thing. She just steamrolled right through (laughs) all those people. Well, it's been really lovely to talk to you. I know that immediately following this conversation, I am going to be listening to it. Yeah, maybe I'll listen to it too, because to be perfectly honest, I've only listened to it maybe two or three times in the like six years since I 
wrote the book. Wow. Well, it was a, a conscious decision. Not conscious, but it's not like I got sick of it. But I think if you're going to have to listen to something that intensively and think about it so intensively, it's then a hard thing. You can't really listen to it casually again. Not only do I know it as a record, like inside out. I mean, I did anyway before I started writing the book, but having researched it and talked to people about it and written about it, it's not a record that I just want to like chuck on anymore. <laughs> you know? Sure, um, yeah, it's just not a casual. No, it's not. A, no, no. And so I think, again, a hot tip for anyone out there, again, who may want to write something for the 33 and a third series, it's another good reason to like be strategic and not necessarily pitch like your most beloved record to the series because it changes your relationship with a record to have to think about it so intensively. But yeah, I might go and put it on now too. It's been a while. It's been a while. You gotta let me know how you feel about it now after six years of not listening. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, <laughs> only occasionally. Yeah, yeah. I reckon it'll stand up. I'm of the theory that albums either date or they don't. And if it still sounded good after 20 years, I reckon it's still going to sound good after 26 years. Sounds pretty good to me still. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't write a book about it, fair, but... well anyway thank you again for this it's been great to relive this moment of my not even a moment of my this is just like (laughs) it's been great to relive like a particularly potent moment of my adolescence especially (laughs) i'm glad i'm glad (laughs) 